0: Hello, Michael. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm happy to have you here. Thanks so much for joining.
1: I'm delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I, I feel a connection already between the two of us.
0: Yeah, I read your your profile when you you know when you reached out, and I was like, this is a perfect match. I'm, I'm glad to have you on. Um, so yeah, I, I usually I start when have, having my guests just give a little bit of a personal background, uh, you know, where they where they've been, where they're wanting to go, and 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 their story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to dive in. I've to be brief, but by all means, feel free to ask any questions about any piece. So I was born and raised in a very poor family and a very abusive family. And a lot of bad stuff went down. My dad went to jail for 10 years and I left that town a very, very angry young man. And so I go off to college and I uh, kind of tried what I call the church of hedonism. I drank like a fish, chased the ladies, not very well, I wasn't good at that. Chased the online ladies a fair bit, which turns out you know, that's a lot easier. And uh, trying to see if I could find my way to make that be the key to happiness. Turns out, it didn't work. And as I'm going through graduate school, uh, I kind of decided, well, that's not working. I knew I wanted to have money. I knew some stuff was important in life. I knew I eventually wanted to have kids. And so I thought, well, the, the, the booze and the ladies isn't working. Let's try something else. And so I started realizing I needed to grow a bit more. I started realizing I needed to find something deeper and more meaningful in my life. And and again, I'm going to do a super high level summary here, but. I was gifted a tremendous number of amazing mentors in my life, men that stepped in to the breached into the gap and said, Hey, Michael, I see this isn't working well for you. Maybe we can talk about this. Maybe I can help. And this took place. I tell people I have the world's best boss at my first job. When I graduated from, I have a PhD in chemistry and I went off and worked for Intel and I was gifted with this amazing boss. He was so deep and his wisdom was so profound. And similarly in the other areas of life again and again, these men came into my life and just poured themselves into me oftentimes with no cost whatsoever. And it started to change who I was. And maybe, so I spent about seven years in Intel, switched to another uh, corporate environment, actually transitioned from the world's best boss to the world's worst boss, and then had this place in my heart to go entrepreneurial and responded about like how most people do like, no way, that's crazy. I should never do that. And you know, the good Lord, I'm a man of faith and my wife working together, eventually overcame my defenses and I went, took the dive, gave up the six figure income, gave up all the nice security and whatnot. And now I actually full-time get to do this right here, where I get to talk to people like you, an awesome young man. I get to talk to people who are hurting really badly. And we talk about ways that they can transform their lives and find happiness and meaningful fulfillment in their lives as well. So
0: that's your, your full-time uh, position at the moment is, is helping guys go, you know, work, work through their problems and such coaching. That's correct. Great, great. Yeah, I think. There's definitely a movement going on. You can, I can sense it. I'm, I'm a little bit in that world, so maybe I have, uh, you know, just by proximity, I, I'm feeling it more. But I can definitely see a lot of guys are are reaching out more and realizing, because you know, as, as a guy, there's a sentiment of no one's coming to help, right? Like you, you reach a certain right. age, you reach a moment where you're like, okay, like it's me against the world, but then you can realize, like, okay, other guys are in that same position and we can help each other out and that's well something i never you know i never realized so
1: we used to have that for all of time that was the way it was because you like you think about it, like for all of time people would grow up in us in whatever their little village was their cluster of mud huts but they knew each other and they the, you know oh that's old tom there he's been around forever and so occasionally old tom would come to young whippersnapper slap him upside the head and say hey young man you're not doing it right but there was this familiarity there and there's this comfort and awareness that everyone knew each other on such a deep level that you could have that kind of connection. And we've lost all of that in our modern world. And what makes it even worse is instead of that, we've substituted this, this social media style inter- interconnectedness, which bluntly I think is a little more compatible with the feminine viewpoint of life than it is with a masculine viewpoint of life. The old line I love is that, that women make friends face to face, men make friends side by side. And it's very hard to be side-by-side side in an online social media environment.
0: Can you can you explain that a little bit further? So you're saying online dating like online dating in general is more geared towards the feminine?
1: Well, not online dating. Dating is a different scenario. Oh. Um, but just in terms of friendships, and so for men to have friendships, I'm not saying men can't have friendships online. Of course we can. But the mm-hmm. natural mechanism by which men form the deepest friendships is working together side-by-side. Side. And I'll use a primitive example. A common goal. Yeah. Or a common task, even maybe like just recently I helped a buddy of mine put a fence in. And the two of us, we had a great conversation. we put putting the fence, but we're working on something. Right. And so we're there to do the thing. And that's very, very different. Whereas two women are quite happy to sit down and just talk over coffee and tea, looking at each other straight face to face.
0: It's like the typical, like, what did you guys talk about? I don't know. We didn't, we didn't talk about much, right? We just, we played golf or, you know, like we did, we, 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 we accomplished a task adjacent to each other we didn't necessarily like learn about what's going on in, in each other's lives it's definitely a a, a a running joke at the moment
1: it is but it's also i think a great problem i think the invitation is while men are working side by side they should be talking about something important you No, know, this particular friend and i when we talked we spoke about our marriages and how he was doing his marriage how i was doing my marriage where i was coming up short where he was coming up short
0: hmm and was that something that you instigated or is that something that just came up naturally? Or I guess, because you, you have to reach a certain level of closeness with a person, especially between guys, I feel like you have to have gone through a battle together to be able to open up like that to each other, so.
1: You're, you're totally right, first off. This was not our first project together. And so I should definitely you know, qualify this, that this is not my first time meeting somebody. You know, I, I meet a nice young man like you, Andres, and I might be like, yeah, we can talk some real stuff, but I'm gonna share the deepest fears of my heart with someone only once they've, they've earned that, right? you have to put that time in but you also have to know that's what you want to aim for and so these days in my life honors i don't have time for people who want the shallow relationship you know if if i meet somebody new within a few minutes i at least i'm sensing like is this someone who become a deep friend or is this someone bluntly just not worth my time not that they're not a wonderful person in their own right but i have six kids i am busy trying to build this business i don't have a lot of time for a lot of friends and so i'm going to build the relationships that will go deep
0: and That's one of the things that in corporate life, I realized, right? Like there's a lot of superficial relationships. And, and one thing that I was quite impatient with is just small talk in general, I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't want a small talk if, you know, like don't tell me about the tomatoes in your garden, right? Like tell me some, some real stuff. And I don't know, I'm personally the type of person that can start talking about those types of things pretty quick, not immediately, but pretty quick. And other people need more time. But, but I, yeah, I agree with you (laughs) is my point, so.
1: Yeah, it's... Well, but even there, if, if you just set out as a purpose, like so much about life is having a purpose and an intent. And you set off with intent to build deep, powerful friendships, you're going to turn away 95% of the guys that want to have that surface level conversation. Like you're going to sift, if there's a thousand guys at your workplace, there might be two to five that are going to be compatible with you, that you'd be comfortable having that deeper relationship. But what a priceless gem to find them. You know, one of the things I think is really critical we need to understand as men is that men heal and grow in a very special way in the presence of other men but they cannot do that in the presence of women. The nature of the masculine and the feminine is such that the masculine has to be order to the feminine's chaos. Now, please understand if you're a female listener, I'm not trying to insult the feminine at all by calling it chaos. Chaos in the philosophical and the psychological speak is where all good things come from. All the gold is found in chaos. Everything we need to survive is found in chaos. The feminine is a, is a deep, rich mystery of wonderfully good things, but the masculine is the order counterpoint to that. And here's the problem. If I, as a male and with a woman, just the dynamics of our relationship require me to be more in the order, or I violated the natural alignment of the genders. Whereas with I'm with a man, now it's permissible for me to drift into disorder to say, hey, look, here's where I'm really struggling. My marriage is a hot mess. I'm yelling at my wife. I'm showing up poorly. I mean, I can make up more stuff if you want. Like all, all this stuff that I'm doing wrong is only really safe to fully go into in the male male environment where I am no longer required to be order in that particular dynamic engagement and this is something i think a lot of people don't really grasp when they're so want to be so egalitarian and say oh well men and women are the same it's just different plumbing well no no they're not actually there's tremendous psychological and physical tests that have shown the vast complexities of differences between how the two genders operate and see the world Hmm.
0: yeah i think there's definitely something to be said of um men being able to be or having or men and women having the capacity to have feminine qualities and masculine qualities, right? You can. Oh, absolutely. And the, and, and guys sometimes want to be able to relax. We have a lot of, we, we feel responsibility towards in the women uh, in our lives. And, you know, a lot of women even come up to me and they're like, damn, I, I want to be able to relax into uh, my feminine. But a lot of guys nowadays don't know how to remain in their, in their masculine and provide that gift, if you will, um, to their, to their, uh, to the woman in their lives. So it's definitely something that, um, has been lost, right? Like that, that ability.
1: So yeah, has strong strongly discouraged It's beyond lost like it, it's actually been, it now is punished. The idea of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. has been so twisted and don't misunderstand. There is of course a toxic way to be masculine in the same way. There's a toxic way to be feminine there, you can go toxic in all the different directions. But I think there's been this confusion that says all or perhaps nearly all masculinity is toxic. And that's certainly not true. And because of that, so many men are afraid to really lean into the toxic, into the authentic masculinity because they're afraid of it being called toxic, even by their own internal voice. And so I totally sympathize. There's a lot of women who want to be feminine, but can't find that rock, that, that, you know, stable platform of order to which to relax into.
0: Yeah, that what you said there about having your inner dialogue, like you either had an a hyper masculine father and that made you want to become the opposite because you were you you saw that as toxic or you had complete lack of masculinity in your father, and so then you become like a hyper masculine and go in the opposite direction, right? It's like a pendulum, and you need to be able to find that center uh unaffected by your inner. Dialogue, your inner critic, uh, and that you know that internal judge that we all have within us. Right.
1: I think I can maybe you make this a little tiny bit simpler and invite a man to look at his own emotional state. When a man is able to approach a moment in time with a place of calm and peace and confidence, he will find his way into his own authentic masculinity. When he approaches a moment in time into fear, desperation, anxiety. There's almost no chance he's going to find the proper authentic. Then he swings. He either, from his place of fear, swings to being overly masculine. We'll do this. You do this. Now do mm-hmm. this. Blah, blah, blah. Or he swings to the overly sensitive. Oh, I don't know. It'll all be fine. I'm sure everyone will get along just fine. When the proper one comes from this this place of calm of saying, well, we're in a pickle. This is this is not a great spot, but here's what I think we need to do. Here's the direction we're going to go, and here's what I think it's going to work. So it's all we to get, up together. This is, let's go. And there's there's a confidence there that's not coming from uh, uh, bravado, hmm.
0: and you can still receive the information from the feminine, right? Like from 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 the woman in your life, right? You can still receive it, I guess, masticate it, and then, or you know, process it rather, and then utilize that in in continuing to lead, right? It's not so when you say you. You're overly masculine or overly aggressive about you. We're we're gonna do this, right? Is that what you mean? I suppose is the question.
1: Yeah. and, And let me perhaps put some other context here. It is quite normal in a male female relationship that she does the vast majority of the talking, and you have to learn how to really listen. And that's not an easy skill. But let me go a level deeper there. The average person doesn't actually necessarily want to get their way. What they really want is to be heard, to be understood, to be connected to be part of something bigger, to feel taken care of. And so if you really get a woman who feels understood, who feels heard, who feels connected, like feels like you're going to take care of her. She won't fight quite as hard. If the final plan you choose doesn't have every single I dotted and T crossed the way she thought it should have been initially. And that's part of what it means to be an authentic masculine is to say, I hear you, I understand you, I take your input, I value your input. I will take care of you. I see this picture. We are stronger together than we are apart. And this is the direction, based upon your input, based upon my input. This is the way we're going. And and there are many decisions that my wife takes lead on. But the big decisions, when something really comes to a head, there, there's, there's. She needs the masculine in the same way that I need the feminine. Yeah, that's
0: that last point is is quite important. I feel like there's been a lot of devaluation of the of the feminine right there's been a obviously feminism has pushed um the the, i guess the idea that there's like a a patriarchy and you know let's not i don't want to get too political or anything but my point is that they're pushing towards um the masculine and they sort of intrinsically devalue the feminine and a lot of i mean men like we need the feminine side of things that we 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 crave it we look for it um and and there's been i think there's been devaluation of both really right i mean you, oh, you can absolutely. say that you can say that we've discouraged masculinity but we've in a sense discouraged femininity and so then maybe we've ended up in these flipped roles where women are having to take on the masculine because they feel unsafe and can't relinquish that and so then you know, and like I said before, like, all, like women have co- like, I, I don't know what it is about me, but people like to talk to them, people open up sort of randomly to me and, and women have told me th- this, like where they just, like they, they're stuck and they can't relax. So
1: it's well. Let me, let sad me sad span, thing to see. If you're open to it, I can even expand a little bit on the side of the feminine. Uh, and we need to understand, Please, yeah. let me start with some basic psychology. Uh, there's a parameter in personality called neuroticism. It's, it's a n- rough sounding word. All it really means is sensitivity to negative emotion. And if you're using this parameter, more neurotic, you're more sensitive to negative emotion. Women are significantly, on average, not all, but on average, whenever we look at distributions, we have to understand what statistics means. On average, women are more sensitive to negative emotion. Well, why would that be? The primary job for women through all of history has been caring for infants. And if you want to keep this thing that's alive, that's that's you know always struggling to die. Like if you cared for an infant, you they're so fragile, they're there's so needs so much intensive care you have to be very sensitive to the slightest bit of negative emotion both in yourself and in those you're with and because of that women have a very sensitive feedback loop for when things aren't working right now we men by contrast we can just sit on our big foot behinds and be quite comfortable as slowly everything burns away because we're like well that's good enough for now i did my part we're good to go and so a a wise man living as masculine just as much needs that feminine to say hey look it's an early warning indicator but there's some stuff going wrong here. Oh, your son—he's not hearing you enough. He's not getting enough quality time with you. Your daughter—she's not seeing you role model how to care for her. And and a, a wife with this sensitivity, with this gift of receptivity that she has, where women just receive when they live in their femininity fully, they just receive everyone fully into this maternal care, and then provide this perspective to the man that he's totally blind to. And the man living his masculine may not even be aware of the needs of the wife, of the kids, of the community that the woman just sees naturally being feminine, being open and being receptive. If you think of it this way, um, I'm going to go just a little tiny bit theological for a second. Everything in a woman points inward. You see this genetically in the feminine and feminine genitals. Everything points inward, whereas everything a man points outward. Women have this gift to draw in. And you see this. Women hug everyone. They can hug and pull anyone in. Men, We have this outward focus. It's hard sometimes for us to hug somebody else because we're outward. We want to push ourselves out onto the world and you need that balance. And it's not all push on the world. Sometimes it's come on in, be calm, live in the moment. This is the moment. We don't need to build the new expansion of the house, get the new promotion of the work. We need to live now because your kids need you now. And you're missing that. And 20 years from now, those kids will be gone. And if you're not part of their life, you will have lost that connection with them forever. And I'm just picking on kids because it's the most obvious example. But the feminine is the source of of growth and newness that men need just as much
0: That sort of brings to mind this idea of um you know my my grandfather he worked during the he he ran a business during the day, taught university classes in the afternoon, so you know my fathers told me before that it was like you know I barely saw him, and then I saw my father more than he saw his. And sometimes I think, you know, when the day does come that I have children, hopefully like what I'm doing now, I get to see them even more and, and yeah, it's a little bit of a motivation for me sometimes, you know, absolutely it's not the complete picture, but yeah,
1: we men get too focused on, ex- on executing performance. We get so focused because when you think about it, like you're in a soccer team, right? And it's that critical moment. The ball passes to you. You're in front of the goal. You swing your legs at this moment. One of two things is going to happen. That ball is going to go past the goalie into the net, and you get carried home on the backs of everybody on your teammate, clapped on the shoulder. You're the hero. You won the game. Good job, buddy. Or it misses. Your team goes home in sadness, and you don't get to go to the pizza party, whatever. Like it, The difference there is stark in the male mind. And we get so focused on this job, perform, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, as we said a second ago, what really matters is relationships and these connections. And... The feminine is necessary to pull us out of ourselves. Another way to say it psychologically is that women soften men. And that's very much needed.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. I never thought. So do we harden women?
1: Um, I guess. We we provide a foundation for women. Let me use one of my favorite metaphors. So for a while, I lived in Oregon, and this Oregon coast, you have these big rocky monolith pillars, right? And the waves mm-hmm. come smashing in on the rocks. It's really quite beautiful. And the masculine's kind of like the rocks, and the feminine's kind of like the mm-hmm. waves. And the rocks there, it provides order, it provides structure, it provides contrast and definition. But at the same time, the rocks getting smacked inside the face by the wave. And if you think about the poor rock's perspective for a second, I'm being a little silly, obviously. Here comes in this big old wave, bam, right in the face. You're like, Whoa! I was just sitting here minding my own business. Where did this dang old wave come over and get off smacking me upside the face for? She said, okay, okay, you know what? I'm going to figure this one. I'll let it go. Just don't do it again. Of course, two seconds later, another wave, bang, right in the face of the rock, right? And so there's this dance and this tension between the genders, and masculinity, which is the men provide the order and the structure. The women provide the chaos, and the dynamic, and the growth and the new. And there's a tension there. Each one feels uncomfortable because it's different, but each one needs the other. The waves without the rocks would never accomplish anything. And if you understand how water dynamics work, the waves with no with no external context, the water just circles in endless loops, and never travels anywhere. And the rocks without the waves, well, what would be the where's the beauty? Where's the di- new? Where's the dynamic? Where's the different? And hmm. rocks and waves are put the mere shallowest example of the true depth and beauty of the masculine, and the feminine, the dance and the interaction.
0: When you were explaining waves, there I could tell you were an engineer <laughs> <laughs> or, or a scientific background, I suppose. <laughs> totally. Yeah, so I, a little bit of a change of pace. Then I mean, now that we're already talking about uh, your schooling and all that, um, what was what was the trend? What was that mental transition that you took? Because I mean, I I was an engineer and I left that behind at this point, and um, and it was definitely a difficult thing to to do. I think a lot of us, like we were saying before, like we're go go go, um, and oftentimes we identify ourselves with our career, with you know, like. I I used to think I'm an engineer. That's who I am, and it took a lot of work internally to sort of let that go, and um and realize I can be more. I want to be more, and you know I want to explore a little bit more of what what uh, the world could uh, provide for me. So,
1: so let's start with my story. But I want to expand a little bit what you said about the whole identity piece and how we identify and mm-hmm. define who we are. So in my story, the way that I handled it bluntly was poorly it was not an easy transition um so it helped a little bit that i mentioned earlier that at intel i had the world's best boss this man was phenomenal he just taught more about how to have relationships just by the way he acted than ever he did in words and i remember like let's say there was a meeting coming up there's a really important meeting and some big decision was going to be decided he would go before the meeting and he would talk to every single stakeholder in that meeting one on one in his cubicle, sometimes starting even a week beforehand, right? So when the actual meeting arrived, and it was so cute, I just, I'm laughing as I'm remembering how this went down is you have the big, big, big boss, and he's like, All right, here's the meeting. We're here to decide such and such and such. He'd look around, let each party talk. Eventually, he'd look over at my boss. His name was Gary. He said, All right, Gary, tell me what's going to happen here. And Gary would be like, Well, you know, after thinking, listen carefully, everyone else has said, I wonder about something like this. And he knew the answer because he already found out I was going to fit to everyone because he talked to everyone ahead of time. And he would just drop it in there so calmly. And people would just go, oh, yeah, that would work. And it was because he had these relationships. He knew how to get them to trust him, to share their real concerns and real problems going in this workplace environment. And so he was incredibly effective. Now, on the inside, what I got to see from Gary that most of them didn't see, is he always tailored his solution a little bit to be in his favor for his group. And so it was just beautiful because he would come back to like, well, they agreed. As part of this gigantic change, we had to slip in this one thing we really want to do too. And it was, we were always like, yeah. And so then I transitioned to Micron exactly the opposite this guy was manipulative he was controlling he micromanaged i mean i literally built computer algorithms to hide my way this is a silicon development uh, process i had to hide wafers i would literally hide my allocation under names of people who were just hired who didn't know how to search for what was allocated to them and then i rotated it through because this boss was so bad he would just come steal stuff and take stuff and just do whatever he wanted to with it mm-hmm. and so pretty quickly as we're going through this process I, I would watch the hearts of my fellow coworkers just be crushed. And I would be like, Ooh, let's talk about what just happened. And so I'd go to the cafe with them. We'd sit down, we just talk through it and building those relationships. I just did my best to be Gary for them. And I loved it. It's so much so in fact, just does need kind of jumping ahead of the story. But after I had left my corporate environment, it was three years that some of those coworkers that I'd had were still contacting me to talk about what was going on for them because that, that relationship was so powerful. And so going through that time that was so painful with his boss and his boss wasn't much better, but his boss's boss was, he just was afraid to act different story. Um, I thought that so that helped ease a little bit there, but I knew that I had a gift for this and I knew that I loved it, but I can tell you with confidence when you sit with somebody and help them gain a new perspective and you watch that light of joy, fill their faces. They thought everything was lost and they realized, Oh no, there is a way to still make this work. There's a way that I can be you know, the good guy and accomplish what I want to get done and still have to turn out well, that is just so phenomenal. So I tell people I have the world's best job now. I, I've seen big, you know, burly men that, could, you know, bench 400 pounds, break down, sobbing in front of me as they confront some wound that they've been too afraid to look at. And I just everything between.
0: And do you find that helping other people has helped you? Because I one of the things that that happens to me when people, like I said, just open up to me is I'm trying to listen and offer some sort of help Um, And I don't do this for a living like you do, but um, one of the things is sort of accepting where they are in their process, right? And that has really taught me to be a more patient person, you know, a more accepting person. And so I guess what have you, how have you changed since you started uh, coaching?
1: So we tend to trust people who are similar to ourselves. This is not new. Like this has been well-documented in psychology for a long time. And so what that means is that somebody who I pick up as a client tends to be someone like me which means they tend to have similar problems that I have. And there's a number of times where either directly my wife says afterwards, hey, I heard you said that to the guy that you were just talking on the call. Maybe you should think about that too, eh? Or more commonly, because my wife's a very gracious woman, she doesn't say that uh, almost ever, is I'll in my own voice say, oh, I'm saying this to this client right now. Hmm, that might apply to me too. And so by all means, you're right. Of course, when we engage in this work, we're giving insights into ourselves. But even beyond that, I think there's a gratitude that comes when when you hear where someone else's story has led them and where they're at now and you use this gratitude that says, wow, just again, my religious background here, praise the Lord that I didn't have that particular challenge because wow, that one sounds tough. Hmm.
0: Definitely gives you perspective of, and it, and it reduces the size of the problems that you have in your life, right? Like you can yes. realize that you're not carrying half as much or even a quarter as much weight as some people have had to carry in their lives. And, and. Gratitude is definitely something that, that, that uh, you should be aware of every day, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, gratitude is a game changer. It, it transforms the world around you. Here's, your perspective is your reality. Uh, Jordan Peterson, who I love, said this the other day. I thought this was profoundly f- helpful. That speaking from a clinical psychology, that you cannot differentiate between thinking about yourself too much and depression. Which means that from a functional standpoint, those two things are the same. And so many people today, and I I put a little bit of blame on this that the whole self-esteem movement was so twisted, whatever. That's a different story. But so many people today get so focused on thinking about themselves and their own problems and their own situation. And then they end up depressed. Because that is that that those two are the same thing.
0: You know, like I I've, I've thought about that. I'm a quite an introspective person, and that sort of has affected me to a to a degree. And i and I've mm-hmm. realized that, you know, people that are not as introspective, they're just, you know, I guess ignorance is bliss, right? Like you can just, you're not thinking about it so much. And, and if you think back, like, would you say that people say 200 years ago, like they had, you know, thinking of Jordan Peterson and how he thought, you know, how he, how he says our lives are much better now than they were 200 years ago, right? Like if you're on a farm working all day, you're not, uh, you're not as in your head, right? I don't know if you've right. heard the Latin phrase like ora et labora. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it just, that, I don't know when I first heard that it stuck in my mind and I was like, and, and I actually was just talking yesterday about how I love, um, you know, extreme sports and things like that. And it, it just gets you out of your head. It's a, it's, it's a skill to learn, right. To, to get out of your head.
1: Yeah, there's nothing at all wrong with being introspective. Introspective is a very valuable skill. The danger comes that for those who are more introspective, or are more introverted, And it's the the reverse change of those who are extroverted, right? Like, wherever you fall on the temperamental spectrum, there's always a challenge. But the danger is that you need to kick yourself in the butt to get out sometimes, whether it's extreme sports, whether it's going to a social event, whatever it is, that from time to time, you just got to kick yourself in the butt to get going, because then you do get to engage out of yourself. And you're totally right. 200 years ago, you're trying to make ends meet, your family's dying of starvation, whatever, you barely got enough food, and you got some mountain lion trying to eat you. You got no time to think about how terrible your life is. You're like, don't eat me, mount lion. dad be the thing, right? I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit here, right? But of course, it was very different back then. It's that we have so much comfort now. But let me give one more interesting twist to this. Uh, the first time Mother Teresa arrived in the United States, um, she looks around and she says to someone next to her, wow, I have never been to such an impoverished country. And the person's shocked. Like, Mother, um, well, no offense, but what are you talking about? Like, we are the wealthiest country in the world. Why would you say that? And she and her mother Teresa kind of nun-like way goes, oh, no, no, no. You're talking about financial prosperity. I'm talking about emotional poverty. And I think she was spot on or said differently. Henry David Rose said, men live lives of quiet desperation. Women too. You just, you know, just the generic men, mankind. And this lives of quiet desperation, I think fits the modern first world human so well, because we have all the material goods. We're surrounded by affluence. And we're alone, and we're alone in our thoughts in our head.
0: You know, I often think that a lot of issues in the U.S. would be resolved if everyone was forced to, to travel when they're eighteen. You know, to go see a uh, different perspective, because it, we are or in the U.S. We're often uh, in a bubble of sorts. You know, it, it's we're, we're it's. I mean, nobody in the U.S. is living above a certain. Oh, I, I don't know what metric I could use, but I guess the poverty line if you compare to a different country, right? So right. everybody is above that and we, we lose perspective. And then like we always say, maybe we'll lose gratitude, right? And so it's, and I may, I, do you think this is like particularly to the US? I mean, maybe the UK, maybe Western Europe a little bit as well, but, but it seems like countries that are a little bit more well-off uh, have that issue.
1: There's a cultural element of the United States, which has always been the, I'm independent. I can do it myself. I don't need anybody else, which makes sense. Look at where we came from. And that's not the same thing in a lot of the other, uh, I'll say, first world European countries. This last summer, uh, there's one of my favorite camping trips of the year. We get a whole bunch of dads from church. We're we'll with 10 dads and up to about 40 plus kids, and we go camping. And we just take over this huge group camping site. And this time, somebody brought along a French exchange student. She was a wonderful girl, very kind. And the whole camping trip, she was always sharing comparisons with what it was like for her growing up in rural France. And it was phenomenal to watch these kids' eyes just open. They're like, What? You guys do what? And you do what? And she, like, at one point, sang a, a French campfire song for us, which is kind of these sad military songs they sing because that's apparently what you sing in France, how all the military fights <laughs> have been lost. I'm, I'm being a little harsh there. That was kind a <laughs> joke. But I mean, she was a wonderful young girl and she shared all these perspectives. And I could not agree more with what you're saying that the benefit. Of seeing the bigger picture, so helpful. I invite people that maybe you don't have the time or the money to actually travel. Great books can get you there too. Reading books that offer those different perspectives is 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 perhaps not as powerful, but still a wonderfully good thing. Hmm.
0: You know, I I often um, I I hear some single or maybe I guess either stay-at-home moms or single moms and such. Say, ex, saying how it can be a little bit of a lonely life. Yes. And I think to um, just maybe my, my childhood a little bit where um, my family's from El Salvador and Central, or Central America and we would get, we'd do these get-togethers in my grandfather's ranch and it was like 25 co- or some amount of cousins. I don't know how many cousins I have, right? And so then there was always like a sense of community uh, that I would very much appreciate and i probably wouldn't recognize had i not grown up in the us this is when mm-hmm. i would visit and you can tell sort of in the us where the nuclear family is more important than the extended family and there's you know there's people that maybe just haven't uh seen their cousins or seen their extended family as much and and we and i guess my point is um that we've sort of lost that community a little bit and um yeah and there's benefits to it right like sometimes large families can be a bit chaotic but um but having that um that community for men and for women is i feel like important right like it's almost like there's a bit of a trend going on right now of, of people saying that they just want to start like a group of farm uh of homesteads they're all are next to each other and then just all homeschool their kids together right oh yeah and i'm in my head i'm just like well that's a commune but like not a commune yep. but like a <laughs> But basically, no, right. right? That, that's the technical definition for
1: it. <laughs> right. It I has a little that, bit of a you know, negative. That is what it is.
0: Right. Yeah. It has maybe a little bit of a negative connotation, but, uh, but yeah, it could be, I don't know. It could, it could work. It could be a, a solution moving forward.
1: So, But look at the yearnings of the human heart. Humans were never meant to live in isolation. The, you know, you're back again, 200 years plus 200 years to hundred thousand years ago. And you wouldn't have a woman raising children. You'd have a whole community of women all raising the children next to each other. And it wouldn't just be a little boy that's, you know, misbehaving and mom has to deal with. There'd be a whole line of women there that not only them, but there'd be a whole line of men coming back that evening when they got back from whatever hunting trip there, whatever they were on. They'll then back them up as well. And that community is critical. But what happened though, was we all got betrayed by our communities. And sometime going through, you know, the, the 20th century, the standard shifted from, I've got your back no matter what. You're my community. I've got you. To, you can't depend on me. I may just up and move. You don't know anymore. And hey, I'm all for moving. I'm all for seeing the world and finding opportunities. Don't misunderstand. But the subconscious message was, you can't depend upon them anymore. And so the reaction was, ooh, well, I don't want to get burned. So I'm going to pull back and live by myself. Because I count myself. and count my family. They're there. Well, the divorce rate puts some, some concern there too. But that's a separate topic. But my point is to say like, Just because we all started moving and stopped depending upon our other people to be there doesn't mean that same basic need just vanished. It's still there. I'm still desperate to have other people that I have a real connection with, not just my wife. My wife can't be everything for me. I I mentioned earlier about how men need other men to heal. Women need other women to communicate with as well. I'm going to give you a hint right here. This is a pro tip. Women communicate with women differently than they communicate with men. And they can say things to women. They can't say to men because the language doesn't exist. And so all of us need that support. We need the ability to say, hey, Mary, can you watch all the kids for a second? I just need to go clean this thing up. Well, because the kids just broke. And so I can't watch my littles. And so there's this, I've got your back feeling that's totally lost. And there's a lot of people talking about starting some variation of a commune. Uh, I've been you know, discussing that as well. But while I recognize that communes have been badly abused through history, at the core of it, the cry of the human heart is, I want someone beside me. I want lots of people beside me. And that's a common theme. And I think we're seeing that leak out and express in lots of different areas, some healthy, some not in our society right now. And
0: how does that mesh then with sort of the idea of empowering the individual, right? Because, you know, taking ownership for where you are in life, where you're wanting to go. And um, it's definitely a little bit ingrained, again, in the American culture of the, the yeah, again, harping a little bit to Jordan Peterson, some of his work, like it empowering the individual is an important thing, and I and I do believe in it. But then, I guess my question is, how does that mesh together with this need for community?
1: We we need to be very careful to say that when we empower an individual, the goal is never to empower them towards the end of of harm. Right? If you go back to like the Hippocratic Oath, it's the first rule is always do no harm. And there is danger in over-empowerment. Don't worry, I'm not about to go become some radical socialist here on you. We're, we're, We're still living in America. But to say that I still have these basic needs, what I look at as empowerment is freeing someone to find those needs and be free to find the needs in the way they want to find them. And I think the danger on a more practical level is we can confuse individual empowerment with lack of need of other people. And they're, they're, those are two separate things. And I'll use a practical example. I have moved my life now to four or five cities. And each time I, to greater or worse extent, set about to find connection with people in those cities. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at doing it. Not because it's actually easier, it's actually harder as you get older. Because when you're younger, it's just natural ways to meet people all the time. As you get older, you, you gotta work harder for it. But I've learned how important it is. And it takes away none of my individual empowerment to say that when I move to a new city, I know how critical it is that I immediately set about finding relationships because those are what sustains me. But let me use a silly example. Like if I were to say, I'm going to empower you so much that you don't have to eat food if you don't want to. Well, you're still going to want to eat food, right? Because like, that's a basic human need. Similar with water and air and shelter and all those kind of things, right? And my claim to you is that the need we have for this connection is as basic a need. And when you are empowered as an individual you're free to find food in whatever you want. Maybe you want to farm, maybe you want to gather, maybe you want to try some new farming technique, and this is the beauty of the free market, is you can try some new technique of farming that may be exponentially more successful, or maybe not. But either way, you're free to try it out and see what works. And similarly, we're seeing that right now in this connection. Is Facebook the right way to connect to people? Is Instagram the right way to connect to people? How do we do that? Like, How do we have these meaningful connections? And the empowerment and freedom is to say, yeah, you can try these different ways, see if it works. Like, There's barriers. You, can, of course, can't be abusive while you're doing it. But in general, the empowerment isn't at all conflictory to the basic needs.
0: Hmm. It's interesting you mentioned social media because uh, a sentiment that you often hear is you know, we're, we're more connected than ever, yet more divided, and more, or there's more, like a higher rate of loneliness than in any generation uh, before us. So,
1: because it's not a real connection. I'll use a much darker example that's, that parallels this perfectly. And that's the rampant rise of pornography. It's, you know, beautiful women are more available than ever. and If you want a huge dopamine hit in your brain, like the, you can get that dopamine hit more reliably than ever. Yet it, it shows so clearly you're more alone than ever. And the damage done by choosing the artificial is, I mean, this is, you know, one of the reasons there's an epidemic right now of young men that are literally unable to be in bed successfully with young women because their brains are so damaged by online exposure that they only know how to get dopamine from the online version. And I think there's there's the danger, it's less extreme, but there's a danger of something similar happening with the social media where it's fast, it's dynamic, it's catchy, it gets your attention, it's, it pops new things up all the time. It's even cool. Uh, you know, the other day I, lo- I saw some neat way to try to fix a piece of drywall hole and given that I have six codes, I have more than one drywall hole here that I've gotta fix. And so it was it was an informative, right? But at the end of the day, it's no substitute for the real thing. And our our deepest need isn't for the dopamine it's for the connection
0: hmm. can you say, can you explain that last part again the, the, the need isn't for the dopamine it's for the connection because so i mean one sort of feeds the other i don't know where is yeah
1: um it is true that connection can feed dopamine but it actually feeds it less than the artificial things do um, let mm-hmm. me. I'll, I'll go back just because the pornography thing is just so easy an example, and it's so well documented scientifically what's happening inside the human brain, that when you expose yourself to that, you get dopamine hits like mad. And for those who don't know, dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is involved with pleasure. Because so when you get feel when you have dopamine release in your brain, it feels really good. It does. But the the problem is because the connection piece isn't there because it's just a bunch of pixels and not a real woman that you've you know made a real commitment to and shared your life with and and intertwined your lives together you know, I, I believe it was uh, Pope JP two said that the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much, is that it shows too little. It doesn't show the real human being and there's no real connection there behind it. And so your brain just on its own circuit, dopamine circuits are programmed to just seek more dopamine because it feels good. And that's a loop that just keeps running, keeps running, keeps running. But then you burn the ability to share yourself anymore because you're so abstracted in what your dopamine circuits will fire off of that maybe going to a movie with a real lady doesn't sound fun anymore. And so you go there and you're like, oh, okay, I'm here. I'm doing it. I'm at the movie. This is kind of lame. Maybe I should watch it online later on. This is still kind of lame because we, we burned our dopamine circuit so badly. They don't know how to process the real thing. And whether it's, just, you know, maybe another example would be sugar. For most of time, we did not have any refined sugar. If you had a little bit of honey once a year, that was amazing. Otherwise, it was what you got in fruit. And now we have refined sugar. And you see with kids right now, there's a reason why there's sugar added to every single boxed food in existence. Asterix, not quite, but virtually every. Because once you start getting used to having sugar added, that's what you want. Your dopamine circuits expect that large amount of sugar. But we all know that sugar is not a real nutritious component. Yeah, it's calories, but you're not going to have a healthy body if all you eat is a whole bunch of sugar. And it, there's exact parallels too. Like There's a deeper need that we have that isn't always super sexy and flashy and dopamine based. But when we pursue that deeper need over the shallow need, long term, this is analogous to what Jordan Peterson talks about, about assuming responsibility it takes the bigger picture into perspective and always leads somewhere better.
0: Hmm. And isn't there, uh, the aspect of, well, um, say that you were going to go, uh, to the movies with a girl, like you were saying, to, to use your example, the idea in your head is better than the actual act often, oftentimes. Right. And so obviously something with like something like pornography could also, uh, it could it could happen this in the same way, right? Where the idea of 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 sex is better than than the actual way it happens in your life. And so then these artificial um dopamine hits that you're that you know in social media when you're scrolling through Instagram and all that, it's sort of similar to having just a very vivid idea in your head of what something is gonna be like, right? So it overstimulates even more. Then, you know, so, so it's almost like it o- the issue always existed. It's just been exacerbated because of social media. Yes.
1: Yes. You know, one of the things we're trying to touch on here a little bit is do you live in a world of facts or do you live in a world of stories? And we all want to say, we live in a world of facts. We want to say, look, this is a pen I'm holding my hand right now. Right? Well, the reality is actually that's not the case. And if, I'm going to go back to my engineering roots here for just a second. Imagine for a moment, if you will, the terabytes of data that come into your eyes every single moment that you're looking around, okay? Just terabytes of material, visual data, so much data comes in, your brain cannot process all of that. And so literally, there's entire circuits in your brain whose function is to throw most of that data away. And in fact, you're, your understanding of what's happening around you is more based upon what your brain remembers happening than what actually is happening. And if you ever doubt this, the way to prove this is really simple. Just take your head and shake your head like do this for a little bit. Now take your phone, hit the record button and do that with your phone and see if your experience what your brain perceives as reality looks like what the screen looks like when you shake it. And it doesn't because your brain averages based upon what it's seen. So the reality is at the end of the day, I have this massive amount of data coming in, of which by the way is still a tiny subset of what the world contains in terms of actual data. And I throw almost all of that away. And what matters is the story that I create out of the teeny, teeny, tiny piece of data that I retain, that's the story that on which upon I base my life. And this is why it is entirely possible for you to look at something and see uh, sequence a somebody else to be watching the same thing and see a totally different sequence. And both of you are right because of the ridiculous terabytes of data available from that sequence, you chose a different 0.0001% of the data to keep than they did. And we need to understand this. Like when we start talking about stories in our head and expectations, that the story in our head is more powerful for how you live your life than whatever the reality is, because. Let's say I go to a movie with a girl, such a great example, that even the quote unquote reality of that could be radically different. If I really like her and I'm excited, ooh, I'm feeling dopey, I'm happy, I'm excited, oh yeah, I like this girl, I've been trying to date her for years, she finally said yes. Whereas if I'm like, oh, I'm only here because I made a bet with somebody that knows I actually take her on a date, so I'm trying to win the bet, but I actually don't really like her, Was this thing over yet? Like there's a story that I'm just starting to fold in that literally transforms my experience in that moment of whether or not I enjoy going to the movie with this cute girl. And I'm
0: sure in the, in the version where you're less interested, she'll be more interested in you. Right. And <laughs> <As> they
1: say, <laughs> but, um, there's <laughs> a funny flip there, but when we talk about attraction, the, the, attraction equations are, are, that's like a second order dynamic when you start talking about how right, attraction right.
0: works. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm just more so making a joke, but yes. But so what is some practical advice for somebody? Let's say, um, Like a a simple thing uh, that I was conversing with a mentor of mine yesterday was that say say you go up to a coffee coffee shop and you order a a coffee but you're like oh you know what I've had too much caffeine I should probably get a tea and then you don't you decide not to do it because you tell yourself a story of like oh no I'm probably bothering him or you know he's had to deal with a lot of people but so then when in reality it's like you know three customers ago it was a crazy homeless guy that made a big disaster, right? So it's like not even the, the, he's not even worried about you, right? So what is, what's the tactic that you can take to to then, you know, other than being obviously conscious of it, but is there something else that you can do or is is it, is it just a muscle that
1: you need to practice? It's certainly a muscle you need to practice, but let me start with the perspective because I think the story and the perspective Mm -hmm. are so important. Start with the perspective that everyone is desperate for deep connections. And simultaneously terrified of being hurt in the process of trying to find it. And there's this incredible tension present in all of our hearts. I need this thing so bad, yet I'm terrified of what's going to happen. if i actually try to pursue it. So when you look at that from that perspective, my question to you is always, how can you approach the situation in a way that unlocks the terror? And I'll give you a magical bullet. The human smile is one of the most powerful things you can do. that will sidestep some of the negative stories in people's heads. And I'll, here's a challenge that I'll give you and all the listeners. The next time you're in a situation feel a little, little bit awkward, put on a big old smile and approach it with a little tiny bit of humor. Even if it's self-deprecating humor, that's okay. That'll still get the job done. Like, you know, ah, I'm such a klutz. I can't believe I forgot this thing. But, you know, I don't know if you're even available, but could you maybe help me out for my own silliness here? Mm-hmm. And because we're smiling, because we're making levity of it, it unlocks some barriers to say, you know, it's okay. I'm not going to stab you in the back if you get a little bit of littlest bit of real connection with me here, but also then gives them permission to say like maybe 5% deeper with this guy. Maybe, maybe it's okay to go 5% deeper connection and he'll look you in the eye and say, yeah, dude, I can totally help you out. I've made that mistake. Mm -hmm. too." You might say that whatever, but that right there is, is me saying I have a problem and you saying I have that problem too. That's connection. It's still shallow. Like this is not a deep, powerful friendship I want to encourage people to eventually work towards. But don't underestimate that bit of real connection right there because a little piece of your heart goes, oh, I'm not alone. And that is a powerful, powerful thing to start pulling on people's hearts with. And I don't you, I encourage you, don't use this in the dark side of the force because you can obviously use this to manipulate people as well. But this ability just to smile and to offer a safe little bit of connection can be very, very powerful. But the second piece of advice I have to put out there is don't settle for that and ruthlessly look for friends that you will be willing to go deep with you.
0: It it made me think of that idea of your, and I always get, I always flip the order here, but it's, it's your thoughts create your feelings and your feelings create your reality or your emotions create your reality. Right. So like you could be like you were saying, if, because in reality, what you're doing by smiling, recreating that connection is setting the tone for the conversation. Right. And so then if you come at it worried that this other person is going to be angry, maybe they're in a great mood, but they're reading facial expressions on you. And then they're going to feel like, Oh, something is wrong with this guy. Right. So then they're going to become uncomfortable. So then, you know, we don't they know how, more right. And so then you s- created your own problem, which you could have avoided if had you not, um, you know, held that belief, right?
1: So true. It's, it's it, I forget, I don't remember the statistics. It's something like 90% of our problems are nowhere near as big of a problem as we actually think they are. And when we learn just to to laugh at ourselves, not only do we unlock half the world's greatest jokes, but we also uh, find the ability to just let go of all the stuff gets in the way of what really matters. Is this a real statistic or
0: is this just one of those? Um,
1: <laughs> I don't know, I read it once, something a long ago, but I'm, it's so far ab- abstract at this point in time, I'll say I made it up.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, wh- I guess an idea that I love is that the majority of the problems and well, like you said, yeah, the majority of your, of your problems are within you. So then that means, okay, well I have control of everything. And I feel like that's a big thing, especially among men. It's like feeling like they don't have any control of their lives. And, um, it's definitely a sentiment that I had at, at, at one point in my life. So we all um, do. Yeah.
1: Can you go back to the, uh, again, going to the biblical text, go back to the story of Adam and Eve. Originally, Adam and Eve were made without sin. They had complete, perfect self-control. They mess up. They lose that self-control. What's their solution? Well, fine. If I can't control myself, at least I control you. And that's Mm -hmm. the way that so many of us try to live now is it's too scary. It's too dangerous. It's too overwhelming for me to look inside myself and control myself. So I'll try to control the outcome and control someone else.
0: Hmm. Is there, um, speaking of Adam and Eve and and, um, sort of that uh, metaphorical apple, Right? Is there something to be said there about, um, I I guess I'll let you extrapolate there, but like, is there, you know, is there something to be said there that like men need to be taking more responsibility and, and, or is there a responsibility that we hold that maybe women don't?
1: So let's dive into that story because that's a phenomenal text and there's so many layers there. Uh, Adam Adam is created first and to Adam is given headship of all creation. And then Adam, uh, God creates Eve out of Adam, out of this man woman was created, right? And it says, you need to care for her. Well, and then the serpent comes in the garden. And so you, if you read carefully in the text, you'll read that while the serpent is talking to Eve, Adam is standing there. He's right next to her. And this, this is discussed a little bit later on there in chapter three, that he was right next to her, he was with her the whole time. So what that means is that Adam is standing there, the serpent's trying to hoodwink his wife, and he says nothing. And any response would have been better. Anything from, hey, you loser, leave my wife alone to, I don't know that this guy, this serpent has the best interest in heart, like anything at all, but he said nothing in the typical male fashion. Remember I said, but the rocks, sometimes I just like to sit there and just be rocks. He sat there and it was a rock. And this is the time he needed to lean into his authenticity as, as male to take responsibility to say, I was made the guy who has to answer to God for why this garden is, is has problems. So, so I don't want a problem, serpent, take a hike, get out of here. Hmm. But it says the reverse. When God comes in and confronts that, what does he say? This is so great. I love it. He managed to, in one sentence accuse everyone else but himself. Well, you see, God, it was the woman that you gave me. That was the problem. Not me. It was the woman and you. Because you, you gave her to me, and it was her. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. my fault at all. And obviously, they got kicked out of Eden for that. And in a real way, men today will get kicked out of wherever they think their Eden is if they refuse to take responsibility for what they've done.
0: And they're taking their women along with them, right? Because they're not providing um, that need that they have for them.
1: Absolutely. And that's not, that's not some state statement of like patriarch or anything. That's just a metaphysical mm-hmm. truth. And we see that played out in the statistical data for population analysis at large. Just look at what happens to families when dad's gone. Like the damage done by dad being gone is so clear and so repeated across multiple study after study after study. Like, this isn't just some abstract, ancient Christian religious ideal. This is just metaphysical truth that when you split up the nature of marriage, when men refuse to take responsibility, real harm is done to all parties.
0: And so is there something that women can help men with? Is there a way that they, you know, like, because I, I I sort of want to give a perspective. I don't want to make this entire hour about, how, you know, how guys can can do a better job, but is there something they can that women can do to help the men their the men in their lives?
1: I think a really big example is encouragement. I think I would invite all women to realize that men right now have a really hard spot where we're in in a funny way. Like that's you could say, Oh, we got the cushiest job ever. We really don't even have to work half the time. But the spot we have in a hard way right now is we're trapped between the societal message about men, but the yearnings of our heart. And a lot of men on some level understand the yearnings of their wife, their their woman, whatever the relationship is to lead, but they don't know how because they have no role model. And what this really means at a practical level is they're going to mess it up a lot. And it's it's so hard because the natural woman response is to point towards the good, but that can also be overdone. And if we point to the good by saying, well, you failed the good here, you failed the good here, you failed the good here, you messed up here, you messed up here, and you certainly didn't do any good in this particular situation over here. Instead, realize, hey, this guy, he's kind of an invalid, he's kind of crippled, he's kind of handicapped maybe. And men, like I'm not trying to be mean, but let's be honest, none of us came into this with great role models anymore. And what women can do is encourage. And when you see that right step, it's not full, it's not complete, it's not perfect, but it's a step in the right direction. Hey, honey, I saw that thing. Thank you for doing that. I I know you're trying hard for us. It's very little. I heard once there's an easy way to tell if someone needs encouragement. If they're still breathing. If they've stopped breathing, don't bother.
0: And this is men and women, right? I mean, this is... Yes, this yeah. is both. This is both. This is everyone. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Encouragement. Hmm. So uh, then, I mean, we can all just walk through life giving each other encouragement and that then that creates a sense of community and, and then that fosters um, more of what we're looking for, right? So...
1: Yep. It's hard though. <laughs>
0: one step at a time, right? One, one single action changes, um, incrementally or what's this, what's that saying where, you know, if you do everything, you, you just need to take that one step. So, and then the, 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 combination of them all creates the, the outcome that you're looking for. So, yeah,
1: you know. that's the key. 1% at a time.
0: Great. Well, um, I, I just want to thank you for, for coming on and, and this is a great conversation. Uh, I'm sure we could have talked for another few hours, but, um, but, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So it yeah, I, was a pleasure. We can stay I in touch.
1: Absolutely. Uh, my door's always open. I really enjoyed our conversation as well. Awesome.